you got a Bible, we're going to be in Exodus 19. Uh, we'll begin in verse number 16, um, and then we'll read into the early parts of chapter 20. Um, tonight, we're not going to go deep into the Ten Commandments, but we'll begin to talk about the Ten Commandments more thematically than um, one by one, verse by verse. Um, but uh, I'm excited about tonight's study. I'm excited about what's going to come in the next couple of weeks. But Exodus 19, um, so if you were here last week, um, if you've ever read this chapter, you know this is the, the big arrival at the mountain. All throughout Exodus, we've been hearing this invitation, come up to the mountain and meet your God. Moses um, first encountered God um, in the burning bush. On at the foot of the mountain, um, and uh, God has revealed Himself as as the I Am, as the one and only God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now the God of Moses and His generation. Um, he said, "Moses, I want you to follow me. I want you to go back and get my people and bring them back here and come up to the mountain and meet me and know me and, and begin a relationship with." Me and, and so Moses and the people of Israel, um, Moses and the people had been through a lot since that initial invite. Uh, but they finally arrive in Exodus 19, and after witnessing and experiencing all the wonders and the power of God, um, we read last week um, where God says to them, You've seen all that I've done. It's been very clear and, and very, um, I've been transparent about my power and about my person. Um, you've seen everything. I've carried you out of Egypt on eagles' wings. Um, he has provided for them in amazing ways. Um, and, and we kind of talked about that last week and, and about how we in Christ have experienced God's goodness and the, the, the glory of God in ways that are even beyond what the Jews experienced at the mountain. Um, of course, they, they went through things that we you know, haven't went through and won't go through because of, their, um, because of how literal it was as a nation coming out of slavery. But we in our sin, being freed from bondage, being saved and being um, you know, destined for a life, in the family of God. Um, obviously, this is all a preview of what and who um, we come to in Christ, but there's still, there's still a very powerful application and reason to appreciate this text in and of itself without having to go and make it more of a, you know, an allegory or a metaphor for something that comes later. I, I think there's still something to, to appreciate from this text in and of itself as a historical account of what God's people experienced all those years ago, 3,000 and plus years ago. Um, so the mountain clearly is a cipher for God's presence. Um, God descends to earth to meet with His people, um, and the people ascend the mountain to meet with Him. Um, so you can almost say that uh, this, this story of Mount Sinai and this experience at Mount Sinai um, is where heaven met earth for the first time. Now, as a Christian, uh, the Holy Spirit comes down into our hearts, um, so we don't have to walk up a mountain to meet God. God, Jesus, literally came down the mountain to meet us, right? Um, and, and we can see how this is a picture of something better. And remember, they couldn't, cl- they couldn't all get to too close to the mountain. Moses had to go up for them. So there was a lot of things in the way, a lot of barriers, a lot of things that prevented them from getting the fullness of the glory and the goodness of God. All that being fulfilled in Christ. And we talked extensively about that last week. But as you read through the story of the Jews at Mount Sinai, um, it's it's an amazing moment of heaven, heaven meeting earth and the people experiencing God's presence like they had never before and and, and really wouldn't after. Um, So Moses takes very serious this arrival 
Um, He had gone up and then came back down and tells the people that you need to prepare to meet with God. And he tells them to change clothes. He tells them to, to not touch this and to make sure they prepare this. And very, and, you know, kind of, uh, you know, ceremonial uh, religious or, uh, uh, rituals they go through to prepare for this experience they're about to happen. And, and we kind of took this and applied this in, in a more spiritual way. Um, God says to us, or Moses says to us, whatever you've got to do to prepare yourself for what God has for you every day. Whatever you need to do to get ready for the encounter and the experience that God wants to show you and and, and give to you every single day. It's worth whatever it takes. Uh, God says through Moses, repent, change, do whatever you've got to do to be ready to encounter and experience the fullness of His glory. Don't waste a single day. Don't ever underestimate the, the power and the presence of God that He wants to make known to you in any given day. It may not be a holiday. It may not be a holy day. It may not be a Sunday. You may be going through just the most mundane circumstances. You may be going through the worst of circumstances. Don't underestimate that today might be the day God wants to reveal something to you. God wants to ex- you to experience something. God wants to encounter with you in a way that you never have before. Don't waste a single day because you do not know that it might be the day that God wants to radically change your life. And I believe, I think we believe, the Bible teaches every single day is an opportunity to encounter God in this way. It's not a, well, maybe today or maybe tomorrow. It's a today, tomorrow, and every day. We have the opportunity afforded to us to experience and encounter God. That's the promise of Christianity. That's the promise of the Bible. That's the promise of the God of Mount Sinai. So I say, I say it with with the most passion I can possibly put into words. Don't waste your life. There's too much on the line. God leaves an undeniable impression on the people here at Mount Sinai. They would never forget. They will forever be marked by the power and might and majesty. Now, as if the plagues and the miracles, the feeding of manna and quail and water, as if those miracles weren't already enough, God used this close, up close and personal setting to mark them for life. And, and again, it's, it's hard to read the words and imagine what it was like for them. But I want to read verse 16 through 25 as they just kind of step back and bask in God's presence. And I I promise you, until we get to heaven, there's never going to be a church service. There's never going to be a moment in your life where we experience what they experience just because the measure and and, and the the way that God revealed Himself. But I just want to appreciate what they got to see. And and we'll talk about how we ourselves um, can relate to this. So Moses goes up on the mountain. He comes back three days later. And it says, And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there was thundering and lightnings, a thick cloud on the mountain. The sound of the trumpet was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. So literally, heaven descends to earth at this moment. So God, literally, whatever separates us and all the atmospheres and the spiritual realm and however that stuff works, right? God literally puts, you know, puts heaven you know, in, in, in a descending mode and heaven descends to this camp. Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. So they were literally standing at the foot of heaven 
as this experience happened. Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to gaze at the Lord, and many of them perish. Because that people could not contain what God had brought down on this mountain. And, and really, God's descending on the mountain had really uh, did, did more to uh, kind of denote just how holy He was and how sinful people were than anything else. But this, this experience, again, it would, would never leave these people. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves lest the Lord break out against them. But Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, set bounds around the mountain and consecrate it. Then the Lord said, Away, get down and come up, you Aaron, with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and spoke to them. So essentially what is going on here is God is establishing um, the difference in holy and unholy. Godly and ungodly. Heaven and earth. And he's not doing this to condemn them. He's not doing this to scare them. He's just doing this to say, listen, y'all, this is real, right? This isn't something, this isn't just fairy tale. This is not just religion where you go and you go into a sacred place and somebody plays some instrument that you, you know, you never see outside the building. This isn't some religious ceremony where you go and you get a little tingly feeling and you leave and say, you know, well, that was great or that was inspirational or that was powerful. This is heaven meeting earth. This is the God that is bigger than all the universe that spoke the world into existence. The God who is holy and a consuming fire. This is God Almighty who is bigger and broader and and beyond your imagination. This is God Almighty touching down on your little, tiny, puny planet Earth. This is God intersecting with you and showing you that He has invited you to be a part of something so much bigger than what you could ever imagine. Again, this isn't God trying to scare the people. It's God trying to give them a reality check. This is real. This isn't just religion. This isn't just something that you'll walk away saying, well, man, that was great, but I'll never think about that again. This is a real-life game changer that's supposed to leave you differently, that opens your eyes and say, you know what? I better walk with a little bit different, different pep in my step because this isn't just something that I've been taught about. It's something I've seen. And again, all of this is so that they would not waste a day of their life. And, and, and I want to kind of relate this to us because we will never have an experience like these Jews had. We just won't. Uh, it just isn't part of God's New Testament plan, and it's just not how it works. Now, we can have awesome church services, but awesome church services are not heaven coming down to earth and fire and smoke and thunder and lightning. It's just not reality. But what I can say is this. We experience the general revelation of God every single day, from the sunrise to the sunset to the storms, the natural disasters, anything that, just, you know, that, that is bigger than us, that kind of shakes us up, and we step back and say, wow, you know, we're not in control. There's something bigger going on. We witness God Almighty's power and wonder every single day, whether we, whether we stop and pay attention or not. And I think it would be behoove all of us, it would benefit all of us if we stopped and just gave thought 
and, and gave place to who God is and what God is up to every single day. And it might cause us to take, you know, to think differently and to make decisions differently if we realize that God is in control. Paul kind of takes this and applies this to us in Romans. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his internal power, his divine nature, has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So we ought to learn, and maybe you should pray this. I think this is an admirable prayer. God, show yourself to me just through the general revelation. Show yourself to me through creation. Show yourself to me in ways that maybe I overlook. Maybe I don't stop and appreciate. Maybe I just am too busy or I'm just too consumed in my own life. Show yourself to me, God, so that I might not miss you, that I might not overlook you. And I promise, if you look for God, you will see His fingerprints. But on the same note, and on on, on the same token, God is not just a divine beast that we should ooh and ah at. While His majesty should not go unrecognized, His might should never be missed. There's a balance that is struck in the book of Exodus that is so unique. God communicates, Exodus communicates both sides of God's amazing nature. And we've talked about this several times. But really the thesis of this book, of the whole Bible, is that there is a God who deserves our worship and desires our relationship. There is a God who is so big and so amazing and so mighty and so glorious who deserves our worship but also is personal and desires a relationship. And that is so unique because no other religion teaches that there is an amazing almighty God who wants to know the people that are so much smaller than Him except for our faith. Yahweh is revealed as the one and true and only God. The God we can know and the God we must worship. We see these two themes hit on over and over again in Exodus. Uh, We hear God come to Moses and say to him things like this, let my people go so that they may worship me, so that they may know. So we see these two things over and over again. You'll see the word worship and serve and sacrifice, but if you read Exodus 6, 7, 8, 9, it's repeated over and over again, so that you may worship me, so that you may know me. So you see these two pillars, right? It's about worshiping God, but it's also about knowing God. It's not just about standing back and singing songs to Him, but it's about walking hand in hand with Him. And that balance is so unique and it's so amazing that God, who is so big, is also so personal. Now we've witnessed God set the tone for this in Exodus 19. It's right for God to be exalted and extolled, given the most extravagant of praise in the, on the most extravagant stages. We see how God responds and, and manifests Himself in this chapter. It's stunning. He is stunning. He is awesome. He is above and beyond our wildest imagination, far past our most studied attempt at comprehending Him. It's good and it's right and it's spiritually healthy to exalt God in such an extravagant way. We ought to be loud, we ought to be excited, and we ought to be passionate about His glory and about worshiping Him. But here's where all this leads to in this next chapter. Because the amazing, glorious, supreme, holy, and mighty God of the universe wants to know you. He wants a relationship with you. He doesn't just want to see you around the mountain. He wants to go home with you, right? He wants to to go around through the valleys of life side by side with you. And there should not be a disconnect between the two. 
The universe beckons us to worship God, to exalt Him in light of creation's wonder. But God also desires that we know Him because He loves us, right? So there's something in the universe that says we owe God our worship, but there's something in God's heart that says I owe you my love, right? There's something around us that says we ought to praise God, but there's something inside God's heart that says I want to know you. This is what set Yahweh apart from all the other alleged gods in the ancient world. It's clear throughout the story of the Old Testament that unlike any other god, Yahweh cares, He values His people, and He's committed to His people. Rather, He does not just turn them loose when they mess up. He is committed to them. They weren't commodities. They weren't slaves commissioned to file in line and pile up goods for their master. They were His children. They were His prized possession. Special, anointed, chosen people. This language is exclusive to the lips of Yahweh. No other God is on record saying the things that God, of course, Yahweh said. There is no other, right? But all the other religions of the ancient world, none of them had the words that Yahweh has where He says to His people, I love you, I've chosen you, I prize you. And of course, the New Testament takes this to even greater extremes because we don't just hear from God, we see God through Jesus. The Old Testament promises that God is more than just a cosmic force full of signs and wonders. It promises that that, that God means more and is pointing to more. You know, the Old Testament tells us that we are made in God's image. And and God is trying to tell the Jews that that they mean something to Him and that the whole world means something to Him. And you know how He proves it? God proclaimed he had skin in the game and to prove his commitment he put on the same skin right to prove to people that yeah i made you in my image i've got something on the line if you fail it represents and reflects me and i can't let you fail i love you too much so he put on the same skin he wants to he wanted to prove that to us and and, and i want to prove you tonight that he's always had the same motive this same desire To the point that even the law, even the commandments of God, even the law came from God's commitment to us, not to lord over us, but to lift us up as His own. And I hope we can maybe give you a different perspective on the law, maybe kind of refine a perspective you've had before. But I I want you to know that The law of God came from this place of God valuing people and God loving people and God having chosen us. God's law came from this place not to lord over us with rules, but to lift us up. Now we often separate old and new as if they're incompatible, but the seeds of the new, the seeds of a God who loves and gives and saves is in the Old Testament. There's no other God after all. He didn't one day change from being the God of old to the God of new. He's always been the same God. And even the Ten Commandments speak to God's desire for a relationship with us, His desire to protect us, to father us. Listen to how God begins this famous revelation, perhaps the most famous of all revelations, that held up by both Jew and Christian. The Ten Commandments that we all know as as God's Word to us. Listen to how these commandments begin. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house 
of bondage. He states, as he had before to Moses, who he is. And how does God introduce himself? I am the Lord. Now, I want to talk about this a little bit because I think this is worth touching on and, and being, uh, being right about and being informed about. Remember how God introduced himself to Moses. Exodus 3, Moses says, If I come to the people of Israel and say, The God of your fathers has sent me. And they ask, What is his name? What shall I tell them? So Moses wanted to be able to go back and say, Hey, you know, the specific God, the very certain God, has, has called me. So Moses asked God, hey, what's your name? What's your, you know, how should I, shall I recognize you and, and, and relate people to you? And God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people, I am has sent you. This, this Hebrew phrase that, that we'll talk about the exact wording of it. But he says, Tell them that I am the all, you know, the all powerful, the, the one who always has been, the one who always will be. But literally, the phrase means to be, to exist. I am has sent you. And he goes on and he says, Say to this to the people, the Lord has sent me, this is my name forever. Now notice that the, the, the two word, the word in yellow, Lord, notice how in your Bibles. It's capital L-O-R-D, right? If you read any English Bible, you'll see, these, you'll see this, this word, this title for God. It's the word Lord, but it's not normal English, right? It's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. I want to talk about how that got in your Bibles the way it got in your Bibles. So anytime you see the word Lord, all caps, in the Old Testament, it is this Hebrew phrase, I am that I am. It is this Hebrew phrase that comes from the Hebrew word Yahweh. And it's not simply referring to a Lord, to, to a master, or even to a God. The name Lord does not mean master or God. The name Lord literally means I am that I am. And rather than repeating I am that I am every time the, the name of God is written, you see this capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D to signify this is the name of God. Now, the reason why it's translated LORD in all caps is because the Greeks had a word that is considered the highest of honor to give to anyone. And when the Old Testament was translated into Greek and it was began to be produced all around the world, um, this title, this Greek title that meant Lord of all, was used and was chosen to, uh, to be the name for the Hebrew God. In, in, in the Old Testament, when you see this capital L, capital R, capital D, that is the Hebrew word Yahweh, and the Greek word Kyrios, Kyrios which means Lord of all, it was adopted as the name for God. Now here's the reason. Not because that is a Greek word translation of I am that I am but it evokes a similar meaning it evokes this idea Lord over all so when you see that capital Lord all in the Old Testament it is literally the Hebrew phrase I am but to kind of carry that 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 majesty and to carry that supremacy this word Lord was chosen and also in the Jewish reverence for God they never read out God's name so 
part of the part of the reason to use this name Lord is because the Jews never the Jews didn't would never copy the name of God. So whereas the Old Testament words were copied and recopied and the vowels were kept in, the way the Hebrew language is, the, the name for God never was really preserved. So the Hebrew word is really not as full or clear as some of the other words in the Old Testament. And this, this is why, this is why that there are two different understanding or two different pronunciations of this phrase Yahweh or I am. This is why some people say Jehovah and then some people say Yahweh. Some people choose because the vowels are put in there by people. The vowels are not in the text because the, the name wasn't translated. It wasn't copied because the Jews thought the name of God should not be repeated or should not be spoken. So it's really kind of a mystery, which I think is awesome because it, it speaks to the majesty and the wonder of God's name that is still kept in this shroud of, of glory that we can't comprehend and we can't get our hands around or our minds around and yet we take stabs at it in the dark and for hundreds of years the English people were sure that it was Jehovah and the last 50 years people have said yeah it's probably not Jehovah it's probably Yahweh because that O was not really supposed to be there that's not really important but I think it's important to know that there's still this mystery about God's name that we will never completely know but we take stabs at it in the dark we see through a glass darkly and we give him the glory that we can, the awe and the wonder. Now, that was something I thought was, was worth talking about. But something that stands out about verse 2, beside the name of God, is, I am the Lord, your God. Your God. Now, here's why this is so important. God is about to give commandments, which can easily be communicated as, if you want to be my people... Keep my rules. Isn't that how we usually think the Ten Commandments work? If we want to be God's people, we better keep God's rules. That's how they're often taught and portrayed. But before God ever gives the first law, what does He make very clear? I am the Lord, your God. As in, you're already in a relationship with me. Now we've been paying attention. God revealed Himself. He pardoned them. He parted the Red Sea. He fed them from heaven. He guided them with a cloud and with fire. He was with them. So clearly, Yahweh and Israel clearly already have a relationship before the rules of Exodus 20. The law was not given to save. It was given to keep them safe. They were already in a relationship. And this is so important as you understand what the law is and what it means and how it applies. In the same way that when you were a kid and when you got in trouble and if the neighbor's kid was in the same predicament, your parents sent that kid back to its parents, his or her parents, right? Because your parents weren't going to discipline someone that wasn't their child. So God doesn't cross the yard and order somebody else's kid around. He gave and gives rules to His children because He wants the best for His children because He's a good Father. Notice what the verse says clearly. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of slavery. God gave the law to those who He had saved to keep them from getting enslaved ever again.
So why was God giving the Jews the law? Because He had saved them. And He did not want to see them become enslaved ever again. As Christians, this comes into even bigger and clearer light because we are saved through Jesus. Nothing else saves us. But the entire Word of God is our counsel and our guidebook as what we are to do and what we are not to do. Likewise, as they had been saved and sealed, this was how God was leading them to fulfill their new life. And I want to encourage you to read Romans 6. I preach that text a lot. I'll preach it again sometime soon, I'm sure. Romans 6 is the perfect text to help make sense of all of this. Romans 6 talks about how we are saved. We are buried in Christ's death, raised in the newness of life. In baptism we were buried. In His resurrection we were saved. Raised. So as saved people, we don't resist God's Word. We don't reject guidance as if it's legalism. We embrace it because God's Word is leading us as new creatures, as people given new life. So here's what we need to understand as Christians. As Christians who sometimes encounter things in the Bible that convicts us. And then sometimes we think, well, you know, if I'm saved by grace, then I don't really need somebody to tell me that I'm wrong or that I've sinned. You know, why is that conviction still there? Here's what the law is for, and here's what the Word of God does for us Christians. It asks us this question. What was buried or needs to be buried that you're still carrying around that is contrary to your resurrection life? Are you carrying something around that was buried or maybe it needs to be buried? that is contrary to your new life as a believer, as a child of God. Now, God will spend the next several years teaching the Jews to walk in light of their new identity. They will often drift back to this slave mentality, but He reminds them, I've set you free. And He says over and over again, do not get back into slave mindset where you fall back into sin. He reminds him over and over again that sin is not a game, it's slavery. You hear that? Sin is not a game, it's slavery. Every time sin tempts you, remember, you've got, sin, you've got skin in the game. God has skin in the game. So you're not only is sin messing with you, but it's messing with God because God purchased you. God claims you as His own. Romans 6 verse 12 says something that gives us a very important kind of application. It says, Let not sin reign, but present yourself to God. So do not yield yourself to sin, but yield yourself to God. This is why we need the Word. It's why we need the law of God, the New Testament, all the Bible. It instructs us as to what we should do and what we should not do. How we will not let sin reign, but how we can present ourselves to God. Now, there are things that have been made clear in the New Testament that the law you know, is kind of murky about. It's important to read the whole book. But the overall intent of old and new is that we might walk in light of the freedom of salvation. And James even refers to the law like this. The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So where is the blessing found? In obedience. The law of liberty. We think law restricts. We think law keeps us from doing what we want to do. 
James says the law is liberating because the law keeps us free. So here's the thing. The Jews were not entering a time where they were going to be under the law because they were under God. And when you're under God, you're under grace. Because how did they get saved? He brought them out of Egypt. He brought them out of bondage. They were under God, so they were under grace. We'll close by looking at the very first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me, or above me, or in place of me, or around me at all. Why would you want to serve any other God when you have been saved by the one and only God and He is the one and only that will keep you safe? Because under Him, you're under grace. Now we'll see this throughout the Old Testament. When they turn away from Yahweh and they turn to other gods, they always trade freedom for slavery. When we turn from God to any other master, we always trade freedom for slavery, peace for chaos. And the contrast couldn't be more clear. Whereas God wants to purpose us and bless us, the world wants to poison us and use us. So just remember, how were you saved? God bought you. God pardoned you. 1 Corinthians 5 says, Cleanse out the old leaven that you, are, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ is the Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. The law helps us know how we can glorify God with all of our life. Remember, God has skin in the game. He bought you through the blood of Jesus. He paid a price for you. And remind, this reminds us that God wants to resurrect us and give us new life. All other gods. All other gods dig graves, but God resurrects us from graves and secures us in His grace. And His Word and His law are all a part of His gracious plan to save and to keep us safe under His amazing grace. Let me pray for you. Father, I love you. Thank you for your word. God, we're thankful that you have given us your word. And Lord, sometimes we resist it. Sometimes we, we don't want to listen. We don't want to obey. We don't want to hear. But Father, help us to be like James said we should be if we persevere. The law of liberty will bless us. Father, we know that we have not been saved by our works and we will not be saved by our works. We are saved by Your amazing grace. And God, when we fall away from that, when we turn away from that, we only get ourselves enslaved once again. Father, thank You for establishing Your all and Your wonder before us today. Thank You for also reminding us that You are a personal God who comes alongside of us and wants to be in relationship with us. Father, I pray all of this would help us to take more sacred every step that we take, every decision that we make, everything that we look at, everything that we touch, everything that we handle, everything that we begin or, or think about doing. We need to realize that you have got skin in the game. We are your children. We are your purchased possessions. 
So Lord, help us to yield ourselves to you. Help us to not yield ourselves to sin, but to present ourselves to you, our Lord of all. Lord, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.